This is Tony Roth and welcome to Capital Considerations. Probably more than anything else this year in this crazy world that we're living in, the war in Ukraine has driven the global economy and the markets. The devastation has been absolutely heart-wrenching and the ongoing potential for further disruption in the economy is pretty significant. This is a conversation that I think is so relevant to what we're living right now. And what we're going to talk about today is what are the potential outcomes for the war? Where do we see it going in light of a lot of different factors, the military factor first and foremost, but also the actual objectives and balance of power and geopolitical issues or vectors, if you will, that are all working on this situation. So with us today is Dr. Benjamin Jensen, Senior Fellow for Future War Gaming and Strategy in the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He's also Professor of Strategic Studies at the Marine Corps University School of Advanced War Fighting. Dr. Jensen has spent the last decade studying the changing character of war, working alongside various governments and agencies across our government to develop war games and scenario-driven military exercises. He's the author of four books on military strategy and armed conflict. He's also a reserve officer in the U.S. Army. So I want to start by thanking you, Dr. Benjamin Jensen, for your service to the country. And thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you and your listeners for paying taxes and voting. That's a two-way street. <laughs> so as I said at the outset, this is critical on so many levels. And I want to just frame things up from an economic standpoint and make it really clear why this is so important to us as investors. We have inflation. And largely speaking, the inflation was the result of a lot of fiscal stimulus and a lot of I'm going to call it overfocus on goods consumption. When we were locked down, we couldn't do anything else. Um, and it really took a hit on the manufacturing base of the world. And so it's what I'm going to describe as primarily demand-driven inflation. On top of that, we now have some supply chain problems that risk to be very persistent. But now we've got another supply chain problem around energy, which is coming from the situation in, in, in Russia and Ukraine. And so depending on where this war goes, if it further pushes the price of global energy upwards, then that's got a real impact on inflation. And frankly, as the Fed works to try to address the demand-driven inflation by raising rates, they can largely be successful with that. And demand-driven inflation is also largely self-correcting um, through demand destruction as prices go up. But they can't do much about supply. So we've got to understand, right? It's just so important. We've got to understand what's going on in Russia and what are, what are the likely outcomes, what maybe is our base case scenario for what's going to happen with the war and how that may impact global energy supply. We're going to evaluate the military balance between the two sides in this conflict. And then we're going to go and we're going to pivot in the second half of the conversation, which is really the part that's going to be the most critical. It, and we're going to talk about the strategic objectives and the ultimate outcomes. And the military balance is just one factor, right? There's so many other things that are going on here that impact how this turns out. So Dr. Jensen, everyone thought going into this, and I'm one of them, just through my own layperson's assumption, frankly, it was really sheer ignorance that we get into this war and it wouldn't even be a war. It would just be sort of a walkover, right? And this is sort of the stage one of the war where the, R the Russians you know, jumped in and it was gonna be lightning fast, quick footed, just take over the country, the Ukrainians were gonna capitulate. That's not what happened. So tell us about 
the actual military capabilities on both sides that prevented that outcome. First, let me start by saying one of the challenges you have in analyzing war, just like you have if you had to develop an analysis of a company to invest in, are intangibles. And the key intangible in war sometimes is human will, right? So you can count tanks just like you can count supply inventories. You can count personnel just like you can count soldiers. But there's a certain coefficient that you have to multiply by the size of the force with the will to fight and also mm -hmm. the overall competency. Human capital, I think, is a common term that cuts across both military practice and business practices. So I think the first thing that most people discounted was the will to fight and human capital because it's so hard to quantify. It's not that there wasn't a tremendous amount of time and energy spent invested in analyzing both the Russian order of battle, the Russian military, less in the Ukrainian order of battle, the Ukrainian military. But because it's easy, we default to counting tanks, counting planes, counting missiles, never bothering to see that that coefficient of human capital multiplied by the number really produces your aggregate combat output. So to that point, we, when we started this, the broad numbers just seemed to be overwhelming. I mean, 10 to 12,000 Russian tanks. I don't know what the numbers were from a troop standpoint, but, you know, suited up and ready to go. Sure. I mean, were, were they that unwilling to fight or were the, the Russian tanks that decrepit? Um, I mean, what happened? Yeah. So let's unpack that coefficient and talk about how a number like 1,000 becomes 10. <laughs> you know, so one of the things I think first is remember the troops that were mobilized along the Ukrainian border were subject to what's called an extended mobilization from the large scale Russian exercise called Zapad. So every year, Russia got very good at doing these large scale mobilization exercises and moving from military to strategic has a strategic signaling mechanism designed to keep us and other NATO countries guessing. Wow, Russia can move 200,000 people within a month to a border. That's really scary, right? Well, it turns out they spent all their time practicing mobilizing and not practicing fighting because there's an opportunity cost of time. If I'm doing one, I can't necessarily be doing the other. And what that meant is they were very good at moving forces into position, but they didn't necessarily have the type of intense, realistic combat training built in. And they also didn't, almost like a management structure, built in a role for non-commissioned officers and junior officers to take initiative, to see a problem and solve it at the lowest level, which meant for like a, a, a comparison back to a C-suite, it'd be as if the CEO or the COO had to make every decision to including when to load toner into a printer. Um, it would paralyze any organization. So you have this combination of they practiced mobilizing, but they didn't necessarily build the organizational structure for detailed uh, initiative at echelon is the military term for it. How do you have small unit tactics that take advantage of the situation? And then contextually, what they had done in Ukraine is they basically left their troops in the field, in some cases for as long as six months. Remember being young, right? You're 18, 19 years old. You don't really know what you're doing. And now you've mm -hmm. been living in a tent with other stinky guys for six months. Um, probably fighting over cigarettes and homemade vodka, not allowed to use your phone, talk to your you talk to your loved ones, talk to your sweetheart, and you're pissed. Your morale, morale is one of those, the morale is the physical is three to one, as Napoleon said, starts to really decline. So that gives you the two ways that coefficient turns a large number actually into a smaller number of combat power. Structurally and organizationally, they weren't training for the right thing. 
And then also at just the very human level, they don't have a lot of trust in there. They were also angry. There was low morale. So then when it's time to actually cross the border, you could overwhelm. And it was in many cases a 10 to 1 combat ratio, but it didn't matter because now you're attacking people who are fighting for their country and are fighting to win. So it's that morale and the physical kind of coming together with bad organizational practices. And we can break that down more detailed. I just think it's important to establish that conceptual reason of why numbers can be misleading. As investors, the environment's always changing in ways that we don't expect. You know, for example, a war breaks out in Eastern Europe, yeah. um, right? But what we do is we course correct. And we say, gee, maybe we should increase our investment in in deep value energy stocks or materials, for example. Okay, so how have the Russians course corrected? Do you think that they are improving their situation or do you think that they're actually so far behind the curve that the stress of the conflict is actually causing net further deterioration, deterioration in their fighting capacity? How is it evolving? So first, let me just give you a, a, a quick, summary of what Russia has to adapt with, right? Because you're right, when you want to alter your portfolio balance or switch the either time horizon or composition of investments in relation to different sectors, the key thing you have to have as an investor is the capital to do that, or at least a line of capital to do that. The only line of capital Russia has is energy sales. And those don't automatically transfer overnight. It's not like I, I get one ruble of you know oil sales and it automatically becomes one ruble of combat power it takes time to move through their industrial base to build new equipment so the only thing they really have to adapt with at this point are fires assets and nuclear weapons which should actually cause people to be a little concerned when i say fires assets i mean artillery missile barrages ground loss missile barrages and ballistic missiles that are non-nuclear and while their inventories are starting to run low on those you don't need to use high concentrations to just keep friction and tension up on a notional line of contact. So, And you saw this, right? So Russia's first gamble, Russia's first investment concept here and a bid for victory was if I have a lightning fast invasion after a prolonged mobilization, the shock of it will cause the Ukrainian political establishment and military and population to say we don't want to fight. That's why you only saw 45 minutes of what are called joint shaping fires. Usually in U.S. military planning, we would have weeks of long-range missile and airstrikes that actually wore the enemy down before we went in. And that didn't work, right? They did that. The Ukrainians fought. And so they thought, well, I can just mass my way through. That was this huge 70-mile-long, 70-kilometer-long column of tanks just trying to force its way into Kiev and dying in a right. series of ambushes. That was sort of what we thought of as the second yeah. stage of this war. The first stage was a lightning quick attack, capitulation, didn't work. So then they went after Kiev, right? Yeah. With just mass numbers and you know the, the 70 mile And that didn't and work. That didn't work. So now the third pivot was they regrouped their forces in the east and they were gonna try for a more limited objective of consolidating a land corridor to Crimea as well as securing the industrial heartland of the Luhansk and Donetsk. And frankly, there, it's mixed results so far. They have finally, it looks like, taken over Mariupol, but it's you know taking over um, a, a basically destroyed massive industrial area. And now they're mm -hmm. trying to concentrate in the Donbass. 
But I am highly suspect that they'll be able to achieve a meaningful breakthrough because they just they have chewed up the majority of their combat ready forces. Russia organizes by combat ready tiers. And so even though you'll see sheets, again, be weary of numbers that say, oh, a 900,000 person land force. Well, they only had 200,000 of those were combat ready. And they've had to pull additional forces in forced conscription. They're doing everything they can to keep up the land combat pressure. And it's just not working to make any large scale gains. I mean, in order for them to improve the overall fighting capacity, as, as you've described it, number one, they actually have to be trained and have to be strategic on a level that they have not been. They have not been really set up to fight. They've been set up to mobilize and sort of overwhelm, it sounds like, right? Yes, that's a very well said. How surprising was that? They, they were engaged in Syria, Afghanistan. I mean, didn't it seem as though they knew how to fight? They knew how to actually run a, a conflict on the ground? Well, again, the Afghan material is so dated that really most of your senior leaders might have had one time there as a platoon leader, if any time. And the Siri experience is very different. I think the hallmark military experience for them would be Chechnya, actually, um, okay. where a lot of the senior Russian officers fought. And if you look at how they fought in Chechnya, there are some similarities to the Russian playbook. They are overconfident and mobilize and pour forces in to try to shock the system. They get decisively beaten, and then they regroup and basically lay siege in a way that has no respect for property, human rights, or even anything. Just lay waste. Uh, 21st century siege warfare. And that's what they did after they regrouped in Grozny. And that's essentially what they're trying to do on the Eastern Front. That means they might be pulling their scheme of maneuver back from an encirclement or pocket warfare, or also in the old German term is Kesselschlag, the cauldron battle, fire cauldron, which is also the heart of Blitzkrieg, the idea to try to constantly encircle your enemy and force them to surrender or face annihilation. They don't even have the position to do that in the East anymore. So I think you're just going to see artillery duels, massive shelling, and then a series of probing attacks to see if they can get lucky. Because the longer this goes on, they didn't have high will or morale to begin with. You have increased reports of Russian units refusing to fight. Um, don't forget, there's still more Russians arrested for protesting than have been killed on the battlefield. So you also have a war at home, even though the repressive state has proven able to lock people up faster than they can convince their friend to protest. It's just creating a two-front dilemma for them at the strategic level. How long can they prosecute a war? even though they have cash flow coming in from hydrocarbon sales. And then at the operational level, how much of their military are they willing to sacrifice for uncertain gains? So let's talk about the other side, Ukraine. My impression is that Ukraine has the, the will. They have the edge in that it's always, it's always easier to be defensive than offensive. Although now that may be changing if they want to push the Russians out. That in and of itself is a victory to, be, to even have that conversation. So really, their equipment and their capability is one that's being built on the fly as a result of the inflow of weaponry from, from the West, um, not just the U.S., but really the entire West. So where do they stand today, given all of those dynamics? So here is actually an interesting data point. I'm not sure we know. We can get a sense from all of the open source intelligence, the aggregation, the analysis, which is happening often in real time and, and reflective of modern society. I mean, even using things like 
fire detection satellites to determine the front line. I mean, it's nothing short of amazing the type of data that's being aggregated by civilian watchers of this war. But what we don't know, because the Ukrainians have been very careful not to report this, and no one's calling them on it, is actually the depth of their own casualties. And they don't have an infinite number of people to fight. Um, clearly, they are not as high as the Russians. Um, and clearly, the will to fight is there. I think one blind spot we have is actually their casualties and attrition. Now, in the one sense, as long as we have actually are emptying out magazines and inventories to keep the Ukrainians in the fight, that doesn't matter for the next two, three months. But if this lasts up to a year, that could be a real issue. And I, and I want to highlight this in a really specific way with a historical example and its contemporary parallel. We forget that during the 1973 war in Israel, the Yom Kippur War, that the Israelis, one of the things that kept them in the fight was exactly what the U.S. is doing with Ukraine now. It did in a major operation to Israel, airlifting large stockpiles of weapons from Europe to Israel to help sustain that campaign. Well, after the war, this caused a massive panic across the U.S. military because we realized, one, that inventory management in military art is really hard. Wars aren't frequent, thankfully. So you always are struggling to know, well, how many missiles do I need in the magazine? How many should the industrial base be able to produce? And those are all really difficult calculations. And what historically happens, it happened in 73, it's happening in this war, is we underestimate the amount of carnage and the amount of munitions required to achieve a battlefield success. And so the longer this war goes on, even though we've sent the equipment the Ukrainians need, we are actually going to run strategic risk for the United States and NATO in terms of our own inventories um, and our ability to recapitalize our own defense enterprise, much less sustain the Ukrainians, could increasingly become taxed. From our standpoint, that's really important because that tells us it gives us an edge on our investing framework. And it tells us to go invest in the industrial sector, which includes the defense sector. Now, what about the, the Russian Air Force? I find it to be one of the things as a, as a layperson, obviously, that I find to be very unintuitive is the idea that we can actually get these armaments to the Ukrainians. Because I would have thought that clearly the Russians would be easily to be able to control the skies because America is not willing to provide planes directly because that would be too much of a direct conflict and risk nuclear war. So they would dominate the skies and therefore be able to bomb any armaments coming into the country. Why is that a naive or, or simplified conception? Well, a lot of people thought that. I tended not to think it only because of a historical example and a contemporary illicit business example. Historically, every time we as a country, Vietnam is a perfect example of this, even Afghanistan, have tried to use aerial interdiction to interdict supply runs from a safe haven, whether it's in that case um, North Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, or Pakistan – one thing you find is that when you have big borders, it's a big sky, and you can always decompose the material to move amongst commercial traffic. So that's why I also say another parallel is our own war on drugs. It is so extreme. There's just so many routes and such a big sky, so much terrain. We tend to think that the supply is coming with something waving weapons convoy in the air, and it's easy to spot. Um, but even totally. if they did do that, you got to detect it, and you have to have a targeting cycle that moves okay. from detection to interdiction. I guess the answer speaks what you're describing is it speaks to the challenge of the mission from the perspective of the Russians 
not the inadequacy of their Air Force. I do think that if it was a small frontage they were trying to interdict, I think they could do better. The other challenge, though, is the Ukrainians have been extremely creative with um, some of their surface-to-air missile defense schemes. And the other challenge you run into is that, you know, I don't know this, but if you just look at even commercial transponder reporting of the amount of aircraft that are flying around Ukraine, it's really impossible for me to believe that the Ukrainians aren't getting past the best intelligence in the world every time a Russian pilot even smokes a cigarette, much less takes off in a fighter jet headed toward Ukraine. So I think it's a combination of intelligence support and then also very creative uses of surface-to-air and um, sweeps and caps, so fighter sweeps and combat air patrols. So let me give you a, a technical example of this. If I don't turn my radar on, it's very difficult for you to see a surface-to-air missile system, right? It's once it turns the radar on and admits that you can start to get detection. So the Ukrainians seem to have been very good about oscillating when they turn on or turn off radars, and then also passing information from other people's sensors so that I can turn the radar on quick and then off, or I can vector in or or, or move in a surface-to-air missile strike from like a stinger, a handheld device. When you put all that together, do you think that there's a relative balance just from a military standpoint? Or is Russia still clearly dominant just given their sheer numbers? Or do you think that the momentum, just from, again, a sheer military capability standpoint, is really increasingly shifting to the Ukrainians? And it just seems to me from reading the news that the latter is the case, given morale, given the amount of military equipment coming in, et cetera. I would say I think it's most likely to head towards a stalemate and attrition, and that's actually a scary outcome because then it starts to test the extent to which Ukrainian creativity and will combines with Western political focus and resource flows. Because right now you have two competing war models, Ukrainian creativity plus Western resources against Russia's willingness to suffer and extract attrition. Right now, they seem to have turned themselves into parity. And the question is, three months, six months, like what does it tip? And what would be our early indicators it's going to tip? Um, I have to wonder how long all democratic countries will remain as focused on Ukraine as they are. Um, we're already entering midterm season in the U.S. We're going to have different debates. European elections are going to pull them in different directions. And then how long will they be willing to keep spending billions of dollars to fight a proxy war, essentially, against Russia? That is an open political question, and war is a continuation of politics by other means. On the Russian side, we just don't have good information. It seems increasingly, I mean, you've had seven oligarchs commit suicide, put it in scare quotes, since the start of this war, most of them in the energy and gas industry. So it seems like Putin not only has control of his elites, he's also systematically eliminating those that he maybe thought he couldn't control. Um, The latest one, if you haven't seen the article, the guy, the oligarch, went to a shaman for a hangover. I can't make this stuff up. And the shaman gave him a hangover cure that accidentally had toad poison. I, I mean, this stuff is surreal. Will his inner circle stay cohesive or will the West broadly defined stay cohesive? Just in terms of game theory models, the more people you're trying to keep together, the harder it is to maintain cohesion. So we're, we're now in the second part of this dialogue by necessity. I mean, by all accounts, this has been a disaster for Putin. We'll talk more about some of the geopolitical aspects of this in a moment. But what do you think 
Putin's objective is at the moment. He's not going to force out the government of Ukraine, maybe able to knock off Zelensky. You never know. Um, but that, that doesn't seem likely. So he's got his land bridge, more or less. What, what is his objective at this point from a military standpoint? I think that is the open question. He has his land corridor. So now is it just consolidating? Is it tactical consolidation along the front and then stop the, the, the special military operations it's called? That would seem to be the most prudent course of action, right? Thucydides reminds us that war is about fear, honor, and interest. So never underestimate the fragility and delusional pull of the human ego. So Putin, in his case, it's almost his own ego and sense of what Russia is as an empire that he's trying to create. And so at this point, almost consistent with prospect theory, right, that you become more risk acceptant as you're trying to regain something you've lost, it isn't necessarily going to be rational. In that case, he's going to be orienting his strategy, which will translate into military objectives, to continuing an attritional struggle until something breaks. Maybe he gets lucky and assassinates Zelensky. Maybe the West gets distracted. Maybe China gets aggressive and pulls some of the attention that way. He can keep up pressure and wait for an opening and bet that he has more patience than we have um, cohesion and focus. So I think that's really the two kind of polar ends of this. He might not have made up his own mind yet, right? He doesn't have right. to. So in order for him to have that time, the luxury of time, he needs to be able to continue to essentially control the narrative within Russia through the perpetuation of, I'm just going to say it candidly, lies to the Russian people. I mean, the, the disconnect from reality to reportage is really pretty depressing. So do you think that relative to pick a time at the start of the war, his grip on the domestic political situation is as strong as ever? Or do you think that as body bags come back home or as mothers increasingly question, you know, where's my son? Or as inevitably Western perspectives find their way into the country or as, you know, there's, there's certainly a, a, an outflight of Russian talent, a brain drain going on in the country. So as all of those forces swirl within Russia, are those just sort of minor eddies on the margin or and he's got full grasp on the situation or... Is he, does he have um, only a limited time before ultimately the domestic situation? And also, of course, the GDP situation, that they're, they're, they're in a deep recession, and that's going to last for a long time. What's your assessment of all that? So I tend to think that he is more insulated from popular protest, meaning he has proven he is willing to exert surveillance and coercion disproportionate to the will of his own citizens to challenge him. And I think there's a certain disillusionment in society. One of the reasons Russian propaganda is so successful, and frankly, it's been successful in even corridors in our own country in the United States, is that it plays off skepticism. So what it does is it, it basically convinces you that everything is a lie. So why not listen to what I'm saying? It just enhances this inherent skepticism and fear and they even have concepts for this. They developed under the Soviet Union, reflexive control, active measures. We forget that some of the ridiculous debates in our country, like the CIA invented HIV or crack, are functions of KGB propaganda. Like they've actually gone and found the article um, in the 1980s that a KGB operative put into an Indian newspaper to circulate some of this stuff. So, I mean, it is a very powerful tool. And, and the scary part is 
in a connected world where we can all share, we almost crowdsource our own willingness to be lied to by buying into the skepticism and the moral equivalency and the whataboutism. Um, so it's prominent in our country, and it's only going to get worse in the next couple months, the next two years. And in an authoritarian society, it means that they know they're being lied to, and they don't care because everyone's lying to them anyway. So this could just as likely trigger an in-group, out-group dynamic where I might hate my leader, but I hate you more being from outside my country. Just as much as mothers might cry about their kids fighting, they also might start hating Ukrainians more for killing them. Um, so I think it's very difficult to predict how chaotic that domestic situation could get or if it just stays complacent. I think he's proven capable of controlling elites for now, but we'll see. Well, if you analogize it to the Soviet Union, what brought down that regime? Was the opening only possible because somehow a moderate in, in Gorbachev came into power and provided that opening and it wasn't organic through the society? And that's obviously not going to happen here. Maybe. It could be a combination of a moderate demographics. That was kind of their boomer awakening. They didn't have a summer of love. They had a summer of, can I just buy jeans and listen to rock and leave me alone? That happened later. Um, I, I think from an economic standpoint, the unsung hero of the end of the Soviet Union is cheap Saudi oil. So part of it is they lost their ability to sustain revenue through the machine because of some of the oil price dynamics from the late 70s into the early 80s, which also not just were a function of the market, but also political efforts to open that up. It's an overdetermined explanation because there's so many variables, you can't separate them to measure them. Now, the challenge is, even if he can hold a political equilibrium and keep throwing forces at Ukraine... To what end? Like, what does the objective become? And how long can he sustain that? And I think nobody knows. Right now, the scary thing is, I think I saw a chart. I was talking to Ukrainian parliamentarians, so it could have been biased. He's, a, he's made $58 billion in hydrocarbon sales since the start of the Ukrainian conflict. So he's still brought in more money than he spent on the war. And a lot of that $58 billion was incremental to what he would have brought in had the war not occurred due to the mm -hmm. price of oil. So what can he do with this money? In other words, how internally complete is the Russian economy and industrial complex? Because if you can't buy computer chips and you can't buy advanced technology, can he actually create the armaments he needs to be competitive with these Western howitzers and so on, and so drones, et cetera? Okay, so Russia can't import the microchips? but can Kazakhstan, can Brazil. So what he ends up doing is have to pay a corruption premium to have someone else smuggle the resources he needs. So he might pay a little more and have a time lag in, in terms of the supply chain, but I think he's going to get the material components he needs. And at some point, China could just decide to openly back him. Thankfully, that hasn't happened yet. Um, so I think there's ways around that. I think the harder part of this is going to be for the Ukrainians is has his own economy shrinks and their shrink. They're reliant upon someone else supplying weapons, but thinking about this in terms of purchasing power parity, how much cheaper are the factory workers now who are cranking out Russian munitions? Well, labor costs just dropped quite a bit for them, right? So it's almost like while all labor costs are going up to restock and push weapons to Ukraine, his might actually be going down. And where his costs are going up, not that war is surely a function of cost calculations, but I think it's a good objective way to start looking at it he will have the ability through other actors to get those component parts. So again, all of this trends towards an indeterminate horizon that could be prone to stalemate. He can press this war for a lot longer if he wants to.
And he can't claim strategic victory. I mean, it's the ultimate strategic failure now that Finland and Sweden will join NATO. Um, but he can continue to put the pressure on. And you don't see ultimately Turkey blocking Finland and Sweden from joining NATO? Maybe. But I mean, I think I think that's a that's a quiet transaction that can be worked out. Whether we believe the headlines and it's really about PKK activists or it's really about equipment, money, something. Don't forget, Erdogan is not in a good domestic situation, either economically or politically. Um, so he just might be playing a very smart hand in a longer game of poker. So when you put all this together, what you're describing ultimately is a likely base case scenario of a slow burn, an ongoing conflict that ultimately the sanctions will not be effective in bringing Putin to his knees. And ultimately, um, the question that we have to ask ourselves is, in that scenario, is there any reason that the Western European countries would, I'm going to use the word, prematurely desist from consumption of Russian hydrocarbons and particularly gas, right? Oil is easy. The Middle Eastern oil that was going to Asia is going to come into Europe. Um, the Russian oil is going to go to Asia. So that's going to sort of reach its own equilibrium, but it's the gas that's critical. So in this situation that you're describing as an outcome, it doesn't seem that there's any reason that as long as the Russians don't use nuclear weapons or chemical weapons, that the Western countries can't wean themselves off of gas over a period of years. Maybe, but that's a really hard economic question, right? So there's two cost functions at play. One, just as you adequately laid out, was how does the industrial supply lines of the gas transit produce consumer realign itself? And that's going to take months, if not years, in terms of the contracts and then also in terms of the infrastructure. The second piece of it, though, is when do green sources become economically viable at scale to make a sufficient substitution for clean gas or just gas that's cleaner than oil? That is really difficult. Um, that's why you see really smart investors like Bill Gates pouring so much money into alternative nuclear, uh, because they just don't buy that the cost functions for green energy work out. And part of that's a storage issue. That's why you have people like Elon Musk. Tesla isn't just about Tesla. It's about getting the price for the lithium battery down enough that you can have cars. And that's why Solar City. I can have a Tesla roof with a Tesla battery that actually I can now power my own closed loop system. So I think you have really innovative people thinking about this. And even in the best case, they still see it's it's a decade plus away. So I want to understand what you're saying here, Dr. Jepson. This is a really important point to us. Right now, when we look at the cost curve of wind, for example, it's come down very, very consistently over the last decade. Same with solar, different rates, but the cost curves are very, very low right now. And in fact, it's cheaper to build a solar farm and an energy farm over their useful, useful life for the cost of the energy they provide relative to a gas-fired plants, but it takes a much longer time to build those, and they don't provide a energy in a reliable way, the way that a gas does. So you need to have a battery complex in order to store the energy so it's available. Is that what you're saying? That's absolutely what I'm saying. And the other piece of it is higher voltage transmission lines. So the entire way energy grids are designed are based upon a different projections of energy needs. And this is where even the most free market person has to wonder of a role of government as kind of market maker of how do you create that kind of harmony of interest that allow you to rebuild grid infrastructure 
while taking advantage of those declining cost curves in solar and wind. And it's not just about the cost of the energy now. It's about your ability to predict the cost of it over time and ensure a stable flow. That's why the storage thing is such a big deal with renewables and how I can put those together. And frankly, this is going to be important for Ukraine, too, because this war will end. And the Ukrainian economy, I mean, some of the numbers getting thrown around are something like over $200 billion now in infrastructure loss. You have massive amount of reconstruction that's going to happen. So the smart thing to do would also be as you rebuild a country like Ukraine or help is start experimenting with some of these new grid and infrastructure type investments, as well as weaning Europe off of it. I just think it's going to take a lot longer to wean Europe off Russian gas than a lot of estimates. Even the Europeans are kind of admitting this. They're just setting aside hundreds of billions of dollars to do it. Right. But the underlying premise that we've established, I think, is that in a slow burn situation, I mean, Russia's already committed atrocities uh, in their, you know, What's the term to describe, you know, you sort of wipe everything out in front of you? Yeah. Annihilation. Annihilation strategy. Okay. And that has not caused them to back away from the consumption of gas. So, again, absent going nuclear, literally, not just metaphorically, it seems as though the gas will continue to flow to Eastern Europe. As you pointed out, they'll get, a, they'll get around the ruble issue having to settle on rubles. And that's important because that means from an economic standpoint, back to our original framing, we would expect, and this is probably the summary and takeaway of the conversation that's so critical, we would expect from a supply chain standpoint to not see the level of disruption to the cost of gas globally that would push us into a recession. And we've already talked about crude and and why there's more fungibility there and probably not going to see $150 crude at least not just due to this particular conflict. So that's important because that that suggests to us in a, in a GDP that's growing at nominally 9% or so, with inflation coming down, peaking at 8%, let's call it, but coming down measurably going forward, probably ending the year around 4.5%, let's call it, conservatively, that there's plenty of room for economic growth in this economy on a real basis. I think in the United States, there is. The other intangible is the cascading effects economically from the Russian conflict aren't just in hydrocarbon pricing. It's also going to be in very important industrial materials, so aluminum, palladium, some others. And I think the most underappreciated one is really going to be the world is about to enter a food crisis that could produce second and third order effects, the likes of which, I mean, it's hard to imagine. We forget that the Arab Spring coincided not just with the thirst for freedom, but food price inflation. And I know we love to talk about CPI, X energy and food, which is always silly to me because it's the two things that everybody needs. I think the food aspect could really cause some disturbances that it's hard to predict how far they'll go. So well, I don't think it'll impact the US GDP necessarily, but it's going to create real discontent in labor markets because if you're at the lower end, you're struggling to pay for gas. And just like you started, buy groceries. Um, and you're seeing trend towards unionization that will accelerate because of this. So I think there's some weird inefficiencies on the horizon. Well, and you make a really important point, which is that the, the reason that we focus as economists and investors on what we call core inflation and not headline inflation. So it's it's all price movements minus energy and food is because energy and food are very volatile and it could be a big storm. It could be a refiner gets knocked off line due to a hurricane. It could be all kinds of different reasons that uh, are typically very transitory, um, impermanent, that cause 
greater volatility in headline inflation. So we focus on the core. This is a very different situation. Yes. Potentially the persistence of the upper pressure on energy prices and potentially food prices may be uh, much greater than anything we've seen in the past, which should cause us to be much more worried about headline inflation and, and, and set aside these historic notions of core inflation. So I think that's a really important point. This has been an amazing conversation. Let me ask you just one last question, um, which I know is on a lot of people's minds, and it's, it's, it's impossible to answer, but we talked about nuclear a few times in this conversation. Do you see any real chance that is Putin going to try to nu- use nuclear in order to draw in other countries because he becomes desperate? So I don't think so, but I think my confidence in that prediction will decline the longer the war lasts. And let me just explain what I mean by that. We're about to release uh, a piece at CSIS called The Coming Storm that's based upon um, a series of war games we did with partners in Europe, congressional staffers and military professionals that really looked at this question of horizontal escalation and vertical escalation. Horizontal geographic is the conflict spread outside the Ukrainian borders. Vertical, do you begin to use different instruments, go from conventional to chemical to nuclear, and then how much? A little bit, a lot. One of the things that series of war games, and then we did a lot of um, survey experiments in them, so analyzing attitudes towards risk, we found is that the longer the conflict lasts, the more risk-acceptant actors become. And so that's why I'm kind of framing it this way. I don't think there's any rational incentive to use even a tactical nuclear device. The kind of industry term is Gila yield, so much smaller than uh, Hiroshima or Nagasaki, but still a shock value effect to see a mushroom cloud on TV. I do think, though, the longer the conflict lasts, given those political uncertainties we talked about and uncertain battlefield gains, the unthinkable becomes thinkable. So in the next month, no. If this is still going in a year, maybe. So in other words, we have to be very, very careful because the more it looks as though Putin would need to retreat with his tail between his legs, as it were, he's not going to allow that to happen without resorting to something like this. So we have to make sure that he has a measure of face-saving in this process, we have to be very smart about how we arm the Ukrainians and how this thing goes. Yeah, fear, honor, and interest. I really find it hard to believe that Putin is going to all of a sudden find some benevolent side. So when you push a thug into a corner is when they get the most dangerous. Your knowledge here has just been tremendous, and it's uh, such an important conversation. But I think we covered what we wanted to, and and I hope that for for the listeners, uh, they've really gotten on that point that as you move towards a stalemate, there's a really good base case type of scenario here where we don't get the kind of disruption to energy that causes a recession in the U.S. Maybe Europe, maybe Europe, but not the U.S. is what we're seeing right now. Not based on this. Of course, lots of other factors at play. Thank you so much, Dr. Jensen, for being with us today. And thank you to the audience. And I encourage everyone to go to womentotrust.com to provide feedback and read and listen to all of our content. Goodbye, everybody. This podcast is for information purposes only and is not intended as an offer or solicitation for the sale of any financial product or service or recommendation or determination that any investment strategy is suitable for a specific investor. Investors should seek financial advice regarding the suitability of any investment strategy based on the investor's objectives, financial situation, and particular needs. 
the information on Wilmington Trust's capital considerations with Tony Roth has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy and completeness are not guaranteed. The opinions, estimates, and projections constitute the judgment of Wilmington Trust as of the date of this podcast and are subject to change without notice. Wilmington Trust is not authorized to and does not provide legal or tax advice. Our advice and recommendations provided to you is illustrative only and subject to the opinions and advice of your own attorney, tax advisor, or other professional advisor. Diversification does not ensure a profit or guarantee against a loss. There is no assurance that any investment strategy will be successful. Past performance cannot guarantee future results. Investing involves a risk and you may incur a profit or a loss. Any reference to company names mentioned in the podcast should not be constructed as investment advice or investment recommendations of those companies. Facts and views presented in this report have not been reviewed by and may not reflect information known to professionals in other business areas of Wilmington Trust or M&T Bank and may provide to seek to provide financial services to entities referred to in this report. M&T Bank and Wilmington Trust have established information barriers between their various business groups. As a result, M&T Bank and Wilmington Trust do not disclose certain client relationships or compensation received from such entities in their reports. Investment products are not insured by the FDIC or any other governmental agency, are not deposits of or other obligations of or guaranteed by Wilmington Trust, M&T Bank, or any other bank or entity, and are subject to risk, including a possible loss of the principal amount invested. Wilmington Trust is a registered service mark used in connection with various fiduciary and non-fiduciary services offered by certain subsidiaries of M&T Bank Corporation, including, but not limited to, Manufacturers and Traders Trust Company, M&T Bank, Wilmington Trust Company, WTC, operating in Delaware only, Wilmington Trust NA, WTNA, Wilmington Trust Investment Advisors, Inc., WTIA, Wilmington Funds Management Corporation, WFMC, and Wilmington Trust Investment Management, LLC, WTIM. Such services include trustee, custodial agency, investment management, and other services. International corporate and institutional services are offered through M&T Bank Corporation's international subsidiaries. Loans, credit cards, retail, and business deposits, and other business and personal banking services and products are offered by M&T Bank, member FDIC. 2021 M&T Bank Corporation and its subsidiaries, all rights reserved. Private market investments are only available to investors that meet the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission's definitions of qualified purchaser and accredited investor. 